listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. After I calculated this week just for fun, after about 350 sermons over 10 years, it comes down, at least for me, uh, to this. And uh, what a joy uh, it is. And if I can just say something uh, before, before I jump in and get started. I absolutely love that I got to be a part of God building something that's about Him. Like, that's just so good. We, 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 live, we live in a time where we love to elevate people in certain positions, which has just never, ever made sense to me, especially inside of the church. The only one who goes on a pedestal is Jesus. And that's why, that, that, that's why we set out to plant a church that put a spotlight on Jesus Christ and His power to save. And although we have not admittedly done that perfectly, uh, I I believe we've pretty much stayed on point this last decade of consistently presenting the truth of the Gospel, of consistently presenting the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save, and then simply calling all of our hearts to respond in light of who He is. And so when, when I started working on our text this morning in Mark, I was so excited because that's much of what I think we need to deal with here as as the kingdom of God is unfolding, as the beauty of the gospel is being laid out, as Jesus is being revealed to the world, it moved people toward response. Now there are a variety of different responses that we see in the beginning of the gospel of Mark, and I believe this gives us occasion to consider our response to Jesus as well. So that's what we'll be dealing with as we dig in this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, I'd invite you to grab it and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, we have copies available on the end of every row. Uh, Just have somebody pass one down if you need that. Uh, We're going to be looking specifically at verses 7 through 19 of Mark uh, chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us as, as you get situated in that text. Father, I would just echo what we just sang, God, that your presence would fill this place, God, that your spirit would move in this place, and more importantly, that your spirit would move in our hearts this morning, God, to reveal the truth about Jesus, to reveal the truth about who we are, um, God, and that you would beckon us, that you would woo us away from lesser things that we might run to You. So God, do that work. Make Jesus be big. Cast a spotlight on His supremacy this morning, we pray in His name. Amen. All right, uh, so as I said, so we're continuing this study in the Gospel of Mark. And you've heard me say this before. We've studied a number of books of the Bible over the last decade at Red Tree. And whenever you're studying a book of the Bible, I think it's really easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees. right? So you're kind of digging in on individual chunks of Scripture. And unless you 
consistently step back and look at the overall place where you are and the overall tenor of what's happening in the book of the Bible, you can get a little bit lost. And I feel like this is a really good opportunity for us to do that because I've told you where we're going. And I'll repeat it. I want to land on how we, how you and I respond to the revealed Christ, how we respond to the call of Jesus in our lives by looking at how people responded in this text to the call of Jesus. But but here's the thing. If we don't understand the reaction or the response to the revelation of the kingdom and the revelation of Jesus Christ, then, then, then it's helpful to re- re- remind ourselves where sort of how Mark has laid these things out. If we're going to understand the response, we need to understand how Mark has laid these things out. So I'm going to do that for us. If you were here last weekend, you know that Sam wrapped up this section of Mark that details these five interactions where we see Jesus and the religious leaders of the day butting heads. Now we know that this situation sort of came to fruition. It came to a head because Jesus was doing incredible things as he was beginning his ministry. If you think back to early in the book of Mark after Jesus was baptized and then tempted in the wilderness, he began teaching with power and with authority in the synagogues. In fact, his teaching had such authority that it caused a demon inside of a man to call out and acknowledge in the synagogue who Jesus was. You'll remember that Jesus was quick to quiet that demon as he cast him out of the man, but people still saw what happened and they still took notice. So they talked. Who is this Who is this guy who teaches so differently than our religious leaders, than the scribes? Did you see that? He didn't just just cast the demon out of that guy. He told the demon to shut his mouth and it actually obeyed him. It's incredible. And Jesus begins healing the sick and the oppressed and he continues to cast out demons as he encountered them and word of him spread more and more people came to see Jesus to see for themselves what all of this talk is about, and Jesus just kept preaching and kept healing and kept casting out unclean spirits. Jesus even ministers to a man with leprosy, which is crazy at the time. I mean, these are the people that you don't look at. You don't get near. You you pretend they don't exist, and you certainly don't touch them. They were separated from society for a reason, because if you came into contact with a leper, you were instantly unclean. But Jesus didn't care about all of that. He touched the leper. Wasn't just near him. He touched him. Actually touched him. And the most amazing thing happened. That interaction, that physical touch, it didn't make Jesus unclean. It actually made the leper clean. This is something different. This is something new. Now, 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 you know, Jesus says to the leper, he says, listen, I don't want you to tell anybody about what's happened, but the guy ignores him. He can't contain this incredible news. I had leprosy and now I don't. So he goes out and he tells everyone everywhere what Jesus has done for him. And word of Jesus spreads faster and further than before to the point where now, even when Jesus travels out to death, desolate places in the middle of nowhere. People still find him and they come out in droves. And so as Jesus comes back into Capernaum, everyone flocks to the house where he was. 
And it's not just the masses that show up this time. No, now it's the religious leaders that are mixed in with the people. You see, they've heard about Jesus. They've heard that he, that, that, that he teaches with unprecedented authority. They hear that He heals people, that He cleanses lepers with just one touch. They've heard that He commands even the demons, and so they've come out to see this man for themselves. Now this is the point where these five interactions with the scribes and the Pharisees, these cultural collisions, if you will, begin to happen. They span all of chapter 2 and the first six verses of chapter 3. You remember Jesus starts by healing a, a paralytic man who gets lowered down through the roof of this crowded house that Jesus is in. And Jesus not just heals him, but he actually says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees start grumbling to themselves, who is this guy? Who does he think he is that he can forgive this man his sins? Next, Jesus calls Levi out of his tax collecting booth to follow him and then eats a meal at his house with fellow tax collectors and with other sinners as they put it the pharisees asked aloud how could you eat a meal with those types of people and then they question jesus about fasting they point to john's followers they point to their own group they say listen we all fast We have the discipline of fasting, but Jesus, your followers don't even fast. Why is that? Now questioning openly Jesus' leadership. And then Jesus and His disciples are walking through the fields on the Sabbath and His followers are picking heads of grain to which the Pharisees level the charge against Jesus of breaking God's law, of observing the Sabbath and keeping it holy. Now they're calling Him openly a lawbreaker. And then finally... There's this situation in the synagogue where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand and then confronts the Pharisees with this question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Five collisions with the religious leaders of the day that increase in intensity one after the other to the point where the Pharisees have had it. They're done. They're done with Jesus. In fact, it, we, we, we read in chapter 3, verse 6, that they get together with the Herodians, this other group, and, and they essentially put out a contract on Jesus' life. That's the tenor that we head into verse 7 with. You have two things that are happening simultaneously. Jesus is becoming increasingly unpopular with the religious leaders of the day while becoming incredibly popular with the people, with the masses. And just as an aside, because we've been talking a lot about the Pharisees over the last several weeks, here's what fascinates me most about their interactions with Jesus. The Pharisees spent all of their time scrutinizing Jesus and other people and no time scrutinizing their own hearts. Have you ever considered that? I mean, they spent all their time focusing on the behavior of other people, including Jesus, and how they were measuring up or not measuring up to certain standards. And they spent no time actually examining their own hearts and their own level of affection for God. So much so that when they were face to face with God incarnate, they missed Him. I was thinking about that this week, that we... I think we all have a tendency to do the same thing, don't we? 
where, where, where we get so focused on how people around us are measuring up or not measuring up, or we get so focused on how we're measuring up or not measuring up that we miss what Jesus is actually doing. We miss what He's calling us out of and we miss what He's calling us into. We have the opportunity this morning to not miss Jesus. That's what we were just singing. His presence would invade this place that we would see Him. The opportunity that we have this morning is to not miss Jesus. By looking at these responses to Him in Mark, we can consider how we are responding to Jesus as He reveals Himself to us. Are you guys with me in that? Okay. Listen, I'm going to go ahead and beat a dead horse. I'll probably do this all morning. But I want to encourage us to do what the Pharisees never did. Like this morning, I want to encourage us to scrutinize our own hearts. I was at Mid-Cities last week with our brothers and sisters there. It was an amazing time. And David uh, highlighted uh, this passage in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. I I love it. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize that this is about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Church, here's the truth. Every one of of, of the interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees that we have looked at over the last several weeks, every one of them is meant to set the stage and move us to this one overarching truth. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Let's not miss that. Because ultimately, that's the call this morning. Jesus Christ is your righteousness. He is the door. He's the path. He is your all in all. He's life itself. He is the only way for you to be reconciled to God. No amount of good behavior or religious activity or anything else will give you right standing with God. The only one who can save you, redeem you, restore you, the only one who can make you righteous is Jesus Christ Himself. And we experience that by grace which is a gift from God through faith in Him. That's what all of this is driving us towards. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And so I want to get to that by looking at how the people respond to Jesus as He has revealed Himself. So let's read this together and then we'll dig in on it a little bit. This is chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him, followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. Isn't that amazing? You are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and He might send them out to preach. Listen, they might be with Him, 
He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. You have Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. You have Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and of course, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That is the word of the Lord. And let's make sure we have the picture here of what's, of what's happening now as Jesus removes himself from the fray, if you will, with the religious leaders. This mass of people follow him. And it's not just the Jews from that particular region. This was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles coming from all over from places like Tyre and Sidon, way in the north of the region, to Idumea, which was way down in the south by that southern tip of the Dead Sea, from the Decapolis across the Jordan in the east, all the way to the shores of the Mediterranean in the west. People were coming from all over the place. So many people followed him that his disciples had to set up an escape boat, essentially, so that if things got too crazy, they could jump in the boat and not be pressed into the sea by the crowd. That's how many people we're talking about here. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what happens there along the shore. We're left to wonder how that scene played itself uh, out. Instead, he just transitions quickly to this statement in verses 11 and 12 about these unclean spirits and their reaction when they see Jesus. And then he immediately goes into the account of Jesus appointing and sending out the 12 apostles. And that's the way our text ends. That's what's happening here in this text. Now, the reason I think we need to deal with the issue of response to Jesus is because of how Mark presents these accounts to us. We should all be familiar with Mark's sort of crazy writing style by, by now. He's, he's less interested in giving uh, detailed timelines and reporting events precisely how they went down. That's what our Western modern minds crave, but that's not the way Mark writes. That's not his style. He's much, much more interested in telling us things that are necessary to move us up to a place of understanding the kingdom of God and the character and nature of Jesus. That's what he's primarily concerned with. And that's why I think Mark is highlighting in very quick succession how the Pharisees... Listen, he's told us, here's how the Pharisees are responding to Jesus. He's now told us, here's how the masses are responding to Jesus. He even told us how the demons are responding to Jesus. And finally, how Jesus' closest followers were responding to him. I believe that's intentional and is meant to drive us to consider our response to Jesus. By the way, another big reason I think this is the intention of the text is because where Mark takes us right after this. I'm sure you've all read ahead in Mark, and so you know at the beginning of the very next chapter of chapter 4, you find the parable of the sower, very famously right there, which is all about how people respond to hearing the word of truth. This is kind of where Mark's going. What's your response to the word? What's your response to the revelation of Jesus Christ? So in light of that, here's what I want to do. Uh, Because we can sort of track this progression from God is doing something new. 
Right? The kingdom is at hand. God is now with us. To then the response that it calls us to, which is to repent and believe the gospel. I want to look at three kinds of responses that Mark lays out for us. Now, I am not going to include the responses, uh, the response of the demons in this discussion, in part because we've already established sort of an opposition party. That's the religious leaders. We already have that. And in part because they're not human. Uh, and in part because they have a much fuller picture than these other groups of people do, right? They, they, they don't just see the physical. They're seeing what's going on behind the scenes. By the way, That's actually a point that's worth highlighting for us. Of all the groups that we're looking at here, the demons are the ones who acknowledge who Jesus actually is. That's fascinating to me. Like Of all the groups, the demons, are you kidding? The demons are the ones who recognize and acknowledge Jesus? You've heard me say this before over the years, but the demons would get straight A's in any systematic theology class in seminary because they know exactly who Jesus is. They even agree with who Jesus is. They get it. They're just not submitted to the love and lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes, but listen, this is what I think is so insane about the easy beliefism that we've created in American church culture. We've created an environment that doesn't even call people to biblical belief a lot of the time. Instead, it calls people to acknowledgement and agreement. But that's not what saves. That's not what saves. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ as our substitute alone. That's what beckons us to lay down everything at His feet and follow Him. You see, we're, we're, we're shooting for something a little higher than a demonic level of belief here. I, I think this is one of the things, I think this is one of the great dangers of this information-overloaded podcast-saturated Christian culture that we've created in America, where, where we're, we're so content to, we're, we're content to talk about Jesus and even agree with Jesus so long as it doesn't call into question our ideas about or our designs on life, because we know better than He does. So I'll agree with the Jesus thing so long it doesn't call me out for how I want to live my life. Church, we need heart transformation because the transfer of content and information is not enough. We, we live in a day and an age where we are oversaturated with content as it is. What we need right now is a tangible movement of the Holy Spirit to reveal the risen Christ and men and women who respond by submitting their entire lives to His Lordship and are intent on living completely and utterly dependent upon Him. That's what we need. See, the the, the beauty of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the beauty of the gospel of the kingdom being revealed is this, it calls for a response. It always calls for a response. It always divides. The gospel divides. It divides. It separates the, the wheat from the chaff. Sheep from goats. Clean from unclean. Biblical belief in Jesus Christ from everything else. Biblical belief in Jesus Christ separated from everything else. 
But we don't like that kind of exclusivity in our culture, do we? Can we be honest? We don't like that kind of exclusivity in our culture because that doesn't fit the coexist, politically correct, don't offend anyone narrative in our culture. But here's the problem. Jesus is called a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in 1 Peter chapter 2. I love the way one pastor put it. He said this. He said, the Bible offends every culture and every generation just in different ways. Isn't that great? The Bible offends every single culture and every generation just in different ways. He says it's an equal opportunity offender, and that's what we should expect if the Bible really is the Word of God and we really are a fallen people. And it is, and we are. Of course it offends. The gospel offends the narrative of the day. But it's not just that. The gospel also doesn't play nice with the gods that we worship in America. The false gods of comfort and safety and autonomy and control and me-centricity and all the rest. But praise be to Christ that we have a God who loves us enough to deal with those idols. Church, this is the God of old who said to Israel through his prophet Ezekiel, he said, anyone who takes up idols in his heart and sets the stumbling block of iniquity before his face, I will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. Now listen, that I may lay hold of the hearts of my people. That's how much God loves us. That's our God. Who, who loves us through our silly narratives that would dismiss Jesus as too offensive. That's our God who loves us in the face of our idolatry that would lie to us by saying that Jesus is not better. See, the responses to Jesus that we see in the Gospel of Mark aren't that different from the responses that we see to Jesus in our culture today. And so, at the risk of oversimplifying this, let me just take... Uh, a few minutes and break these responses down into three categories for us. I'll just list these and then we'll break them down quickly and then I really want to get to how we are responding to Jesus in light of who He is. I just have to warn you too. I just apologize in advance. These all start with the same letter. You know I hate that. And I'm, I'm honestly... I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not trying to be cute or flippant or anything like that. Honestly, I want you to remember these and be able to think about them critically. So I, I made them all start with the same letter. So just deal, deal with it. Okay. If you're taking notes, write these down. Foe, F-O-E, foe, fan, and follower. Foe, fan, and follower. I think those are the primary responses that we see from people. Now, we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time dealing with this first one because we've dealt with it pretty extensively over the last five sermons in Mark. As Jesus has butted heads with the religious leaders, we've talked about what opposition to Jesus looks like. But I do want to say a couple of things that I think are important in this area. The group of people who have set themselves up as foes in response to the revelation of Jesus Christ, these are people who are spiritually blind. Spiritually blind. They oppose the kingdom of God, yes, but it's because they cannot see the truth. 
Yes, they miss who Jesus is, but it's because they lack an understanding that God is doing something new and something beautiful. And here's what is most important for us to recognize. I don't care what your spiritual condition is right now. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord or if this is your first time hearing any of this. We all at one time were enemies of God. We were all at one time enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 says we were all alienated once and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Ephesians 2 says we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. That's God's wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans 5.10, for if we were enemies, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. We could go on and on and on. Our natural spiritual condition because of the fall is one of enmity with God. We are running as far away from Him as fast as we can. That's true of every single one of our lives at some time. We were defined by pride and self-righteousness and rebellion, the same things that define the religious leaders who are butting heads with Jesus. And so we opposed God. Now listen, some of you might fit into that category right now. You are standing opposed to the things of God because you have been blinded to the truth of who He is and how He loves. Can I tell you something beautiful? You're not here by accident this morning. You're not. God purposed from before the foundation of the world that you would be here and you would hear the truth that you can spend a lifetime trying to figure out how to find peace and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and what you're really searching for is how to be reconciled to the God who created you and who loves you. And the world and your flesh would have you believe that you can find what you're searching for in any number of other things, but it's a lie. It's a lie. The only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to be made right with Him, to finally have what your soul has been aching for, is to submit your life to the One who died in your place. That's Jesus. He died. Taking on the sin of the world. Taking on your sin and offers His righteousness, His right standing with God in return. That's the truth of the Gospel, that you don't have to be at enmity with God anymore. Now here's what we all need to understand. When that happens, when Christ reveals Himself to you and you place your trust in Him and He brings you back from death to life, you become a follower, not a fan. Again, I'm not using those terms to be flippant. I want them to be memorable. You become a follower, not a fan. Now tune in here, because this discussion gets right to the heart of the broken responses that we see in this text. And more importantly, it gets right to the broken responses that we see in this American Christian culture that we have created. And the church needs an awakening in our context. It needs an awakening. In fact, let me define my terms so that we're clear. What what do I mean by a fan of Jesus? Well, think about the crowd in this narrative. These people didn't care about Jesus. 
They didn't care about Jesus. They cared about what Jesus could do for them. They, they cared about what they could get from Him. Now, we know this for several reasons, but just think about how many times as you read the Gospels, how many times Jesus would say a really hard thing and everyone would be gone except His actual followers. It happened multiple times. You've got this mass of people and they're following Jesus for what he can do for them. And then Jesus is like, I'll tell you what, the great one is the time when Jesus fed, fed ten, tens of thousands of people, right? And then they're all like, free lunch. They follow Jesus. And so he looks at him, he says, listen, if you want to be my follower, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. <laughs> Which is the creepiest thing ever. It's very vampiric sounding. It's like people are like, what are you, serious? Everybody's gone except his disciples and like a stray dog, and that's it. He did it multiple times. These are fans. These people wanted things from Jesus. Listen now, this is so good for us. These people wanted things from Jesus so long as it didn't cost them too much. You know what the definition of that is, by the way? consumerism. That's, what, that's the actual literal definition of consumer. Getting maximum return with minimum investment. That's what you get where there's nominalism and easy beliefism and lukewarm attempts at Christianity. I say unapologetically, and I have not been a popular person for the last 10 years for saying this. I say unapologetically that American evangelicalism has been a breeding ground, particularly for the last half century, a breeding ground that has produced a lot of fans of Jesus. It's produced a whole lot of people who claim Jesus with lip, but not with life. A sort of practical atheism. But listen, if you've been hanging around Red Tree for any length of time, you've heard me talk about the fact I really believe, I really believe that the culture in America is changing. Just read the news. American culture has had enough with Christianity or quasi-Christianity or whatever it is. And so our culture is starting to reject it. I say, perfect. It's Perfect. I say, let's see all the fans of Jesus replaced by followers of Jesus. Let's see easy beliefism replaced by counting the cost and a willingness to suffer for His name. Let's see consumerism replaced by covenantalism. Let's see wanting stuff from Jesus replaced by wanting Jesus. Let's see autonomy replaced by surrender. Safety replaced by risk. Worship of self replaced by uninhibited worship of Him. I love the way Alan Hirsch put it. He said, you can do with 12 disciples what you cannot do with 12,000 consumers. Church, the revelation of Jesus Christ calls us to response and that response looks like us dropping everything and following Him. Jesus retreats from the crowd, from the masses, from the people who want things from Him. He retreats from His fans and He does it to charge His followers. 
removes himself to the mountainside. Notice how he calls. He calls his followers to himself. They come. He charges them. Listen closely to what he says because this is the call to his followers today. Same call to his followers today. If you're here and you actually want to follow Jesus, right? You, you don't want to settle for some lukewarm, nominalistic, Americanized, comfortable version of Christianity, which isn't Christianity at all. But you want what's real. You want Jesus because you know that He made it all. He paid it all. He claims it all. And He rules over it all. And so you want that. If that's what you want, then hear this call this morning. He says, be with me, which is incredible, and go and preach my gospel. Be with me, and you go out and be about my work. That's the charge Jesus gives his followers then, and it's the call that he lays before his followers this morning as we sit here. Be with me. That's incredible. That in and of itself is incredible. When you look at God's redemptive history with his people, where we couldn't be anywhere near God because of our sin, but Jesus has made a way. So the fact that we can even be with him is amazing. Be with me. Where there was hostility, there can now be intimacy. We finally have that thing that has been echoing in our souls since the garden when we were separated from him be with me and then join me in the work join me in the work listen god does not need you and he does not need me to get his mission done he doesn't news flash he chooses to use us because he loves us and because if we're going to be with him it means we necessarily have to be about his work because he's a god of mission and he's always doing stuff So we're going to be with Him. We need to be about what He's doing. This is essentially the Great Commission, by the way. Right? Go therefore and baptize baptize everyone. Yeah, whatever. I can't even think this morning. You know how it is. As we go and make disciples of every single nation and we baptize them and we teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Right? What, What does He say right after that? And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That is a beautiful promise. Listen, I'll tell you, um, I, I know our family's doing something that's way, way out of the box. Way out of the box. And depending on the perspective of people, we get all kinds of crazy responses. And I love people's honesty because they'll actually say things. Some people honestly think we're, we're, we're crazy or what we're doing is absolutely stupid. I think that's kind of a faux position. <laughs> honestly. People who are opposed to the things of God, yeah, it looks stupid what we're doing. It looks crazy. But you know what we get a lot of? We get a lot of we're irresponsible and we're endangering our children. I think that's a fan position. I do. That's a fan position. Occasionally, we we have people whose eyes light up and they say, you're just following the call. You're just following what God's telling you to do. That's it, you see. 
We get to walk in joyful obedience and follow closely behind the one who died for us. The one who bought us back from Satan, sin, and death. We get to follow him and be with him as he leads us. Church, I promise you there is no better place to be. No better place to be. Listen, Red Tree, particularly if you call this church your home. I know that we have some guests this morning, but particularly if this is your home. As our culture changes rapidly, let's not be a group of fans. Let's not just be interested spectators as God works to redeem and restore a broken world. Let's be obedient followers as He calls us into that work. See the difference? We're not interested spectators in what God's doing. We're obedient followers who are participating in the work. Listen, your inclusion and my inclusion in the kingdom of God means participation in the kingdom of God. Inclusion means participation. There's no other way. Jesus is calling you to be with Him and to be about His work no matter, no matter the cost. The question is, how do you respond to that call? How do you respond to that call? Let's close like this. I was reading um, just this morning um, in Revelation chapter 3, these amazing letters to the churches. I'm still getting over the fact that I couldn't quote the Great Commission. (laughs) I promise I know it. (laughs) It's so funny. I know, that's right. It's funny. I just pray that God wouldn't let me like get all emotional and get blubbery this morning. He's like, no, I got something better. I'm going to make you forget the Great Commission. Uh, <laughs> so this is the church that, that, that is in Laodicea. Right? I think this is the closest parallel to the American, Americanized church. Jesus addresses this church and calls us to repentance. And there's a famous verse in here. It's verse 20. And we take it out of context and we misuse it. We think it's talking about evangelism, but it's not. It's Jesus talking to the church. So I want to read this and then I'm, I'm going to remind us how do we respond. And we're going to sing and, uh, and we're going to go. And so the question is, how do we go? Right? Like if you're here this morning, you're like, man, I don't, I, I think I'm a foe. Like I, I do not care at all or I've opposed the things of God in my life. Well, here's the beautiful thing. Jesus calls. <laughs> Jesus is beckoning. Like he's made a way. He's paid the price. He's taken your sin and offers you his righteousness. That's available. And if you're like, man, total fan, just like lukewarm, like there's idols in my, in my heart that I know about and I couldn't care less about because I just don't want this to cost me too much. That's probably a good bit of us if we're going to be honest. Man, don't, don't settle for that. It's not even just settling, it leads to destruction. It does. 
That's not biblical Christianity. Let it go. The stuff that you care about more than Jesus doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And then if we're following, if you're like, man, I'm growing, I love Him, I want Him, I'm chasing after Him, great, let this encourage your heart. But listen, listen to this letter to the church in Laodicea, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. You write the words of the Amen. <laughs> it's so good. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Here's what Jesus says to the church. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you would either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's not what you want God to say. It's not. I know that's cute, funny, but it's not. Like if God's looking into our lukewarm, nominalistic lives, we do not want Him being like, man, you make me want to vomit. If you say I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me. We go to God for the source of everything. Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. There's the call. And then here's how good God is. His patient kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Listen to verse 20. Behold, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, that's how good he is. I I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That's the call to the church. Let's pray. Father, would you do this work in our hearts? Only you can. God, I know that we want to try to manufacture and and get responses and we just can't can't do that and we can't white knuckle this thing God we ask that you would just reveal yourself to us in a way that causes us to run to you and I pray for Red Tree for all of our churches but specifically here in West County God that you would start a movement in individual hearts a wave of the gospel that moves and washes over individual hearts that doesn't allow us to sit still and doesn't allow us to harbor idols and doesn't allow us to be focused on ourselves or anything but You and Your mission, God, that it would propel us to take the Gospel where we work and where we live and where we play that people might see the glory and the goodness and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That starts in individual hearts, God. Oh, what you can do with 12 disciples. So let it start here, God. Let us live for your glory, abandoned to your name and your fame in the world. God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.